Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Marty Shanker, let's play theme song roulette. Your choices today are Rush, Juice Newton, and Kanye West. I'll go with Kanye. All right, Kanye, flashing lights, it is. Marty Shanker, senior executive editor of Bloomberg News, chief curator of headlines for the battalions of Wall Street customers that pay for the Bloomberg terminal. Actually, customers across the globe in the financial services industry, investors, hedge fund traders, money managers, corporate executives, they are no strangers to the flashing lights managed by Marty Shanker and his team of editors across the planet. Marty's aliases include Terminal Velocity, The Wizard of Bloomberg, and Marty McFly. We'll have him on for the hour, but hold that thought. Local broadcast of full disclosure made possible by the support of Elwood Thompson's, Richmond's independently owned organic and local market, proudly feeding the community and supporting local farmers for 25 years, located at the top of Carytown. And by Best Bully Sticks, a passionate pet company dedicated to natural products for dogs. Visit them at bestbullysticks.com and call 1-877-483-5853. He don't believe in shooting stars, but he believe in shoes and cars. Wood floors in the new apartment. Kutcher from the stores department. That's Marty Shanker, who's been at Bloomberg for 15 years. Prior to that, 29 years at the Wall Street Journal. His aliases as senior executive editor of Bloomberg News include Terminal Velocity, the Wizard of Bloomberg, and Marty McFly. Now, you have to understand how important this title is. Uh, so many people wake up across the planet every morning looking for what's important. I'm paying you $20,000 a year plus for a Bloomberg terminal. You tell me which headlines are important and separate that from what is noise. And Marty is at the very center of that effort to crystallize really the important 10 or 15 things that you must know now versus all of the noise out there. So it is a treat, sir, to have you on today. Well, it's great to be here, Robin. Uh, tell and me, is Kanye a terminal subscriber at Bloomberg? Not that I know of, but I wouldn't know because we don't have that information, as you know. Oh, but I'm sure he comes and visits the newsroom, I mean, in New York City. You see all sorts of uh, limousines and everything pop up down there. Oh, yeah, it's like well, a we, taped the, we taped the Charlie Rose show at Bloomberg's offices uh, in New York, so we get a lot of celebrities in and out. So he's definitely been in the building. Oh, yeah. And you are familiar, you personally are familiar with flashing lights, 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 Marty. I mean, you are attacked by the paparazzi when you come in and out of that that mothership. I'm often in disguise coming in and out uh, because <laughs> of that reason. <laughs> talk to me, talk to me. This is now your 15th year at Bloomberg. It's um, let, Let's step back for a minute. It's really fascinating at the time of, you know, if, if people approached Mike Bloomberg before he ran for mayor, uh, and said that, um, you know, if I were to bet, uh, this system would not last in the age of the Internet where there's so much disruption. Uh, it's like sipping from a fire hydrant. All this content's being given out for free. And yet the business at Bloomberg, the core business, the terminal business, has never been as strong. You've, you've never had such an expansion of interest um, in, in really the panoply of data that you guys provide as countries, emerging markets come online, people really need to have one uh, to trade, to message with each other. How do, you, how do you wake up every morning, you personally, and determine, all right, uh, this is where I need to start, this is what I need to crystallize down for 15 headlines? Well, usually... Um, and when I do you wake up? When do you wake up? I, I wake up at about 3.45 every morning. Goodness. A.M., New York time. And I get on the terminal first thing, and I read... Um, what's in top. Top is our front page of Bloomberg News, 
And I have editors in Asia who report to me who make those kinds of decisions uh, on what to put on our top page. And the night before, some of the things that we know are going to happen, we give some guidance on what stories should be played there. But a lot of our our news judgment comes via data, and it's the genius of the Bloomberg system that we don't just speculate. Uh, we show, don't tell is one of our great slogans, and we rely on facts because if it's not true, it's not news. So a lot of what we do is data-driven journalism based on what the markets are telling us. So walk us through this last night, for example. Uh, let's say Monday night, the beginning of this week, we know that uh, the Chinese stock market took an enormous tumble. Right. You uh, woke up. Your day effectively started at 3.50. I imagine you're in the office. Uh, you're in there until 6 or so? Yeah, I get in about 6 a.m., and I'm usually leaving at about 6. So uh, on the way home, I don't know if you, t- you take the Jersey Transit or whatnot, you're constantly mindful of what's going on in Asia, what the incipient interest is in things. Uh, what, what are you doing to kind of prime yourself for the memo you have to send to editors over there? Well, we have various news meetings throughout the day in New York, even when Asia is sleeping. Um, and then as we get closer to the Asian trading day, we can see what's happening in New Zealand and Australia. Uh, we take a look at futures, we look at interest rate movements, and then we talk to the early markets people who are actually awake and working at like 5 p.m. New York time. So we get an early sense of where the markets are going. And, you know, you're right, Chinese stock market meltdown is one of the preeminent issues uh, before our customers. And one of the things our customers rely on is, is, is what happened while I was sleeping that I need to know. Right. And that is something that's critically important that we, a service we provide to our customers. When do you sleep though? And when do you have dinner? I can't imagine like if you, if you, if you expect to be up at three 30 and, and skimming, uh, the, the globe for headlines, perhaps you have Bloomberg TV on, um, you have to prepare for your commute to the city. What right. do, what do you do personally to kind of keep up with this, uh, bizarre, almost like marsupial like schedule? Well, I actually get home somewhere. Actually, I usually go to the gym after work, and then I get home like seven or eight, and I actually cook dinner for my wife. And we're I'm usually in bed by ten thirty, if there isn't a Mets game on the West Coast, and um, I'm up at three forty-five. And it's something that actually hard to believe you do get used to it, and um, I seem to function fairly well with a, a minimum of sleep. Now, this is a little inside baseball, but the Subway Inn, that famous dive bar by Bloomberg headquarters in New York City, I think just got bought out by the, was it the Japanese or something? Yeah, the Chinese? something for like that. A crazy amount. Isn't there a pressure to kind of go and, and, and self-medicate over a bunch of beers with other editors? Uh, <laughs> you have to be fairly mission-driven. You're like, nope, I got to get out of here. Gotta no, go home, I gotta usually am pretty disciplined about that. Um, of course, there are always social engagements and prize dinners and things like that that you sort of have to do. But I usually bow out early and get home and get to sleep. I do want to, you know, uh, reel in the years a little bit and go back to the year 2000 where you were persuaded to come to Bloomberg News. Um, 
you know, I, I Bloomberg hit my headquarters when I had a brokerage job out of college. We were given a login. We were taught um, how to how to separate noise from important things for clients. How to use the the wealth of kind of data visualization. There's so much customizability. I mean, you could get airline schedules on it. And I didn't. I was personally a huge fan of Michael Lewis. Like, who would have thought Michael Lewis oh, yeah. be writing for Bloomberg News? You just type NI space Lewis, and you you read things that no one else outside the world. I mean, you'd think he would only write for Vanity Fair or New York Magazine. Um, there's just so much in there. How were you convinced? When was Bloomberg first on your radar? Because after all, um, the longtime editor in chief. Uh, Matt Winkler was a Wall Street Journal person, and his chance profile of Michael Bloomberg, the entrepreneur, kind of earned him this chance of a lifetime to become the first editor at Bloomberg. Well, uh, my history goes back that far. Uh, Tell us about Matt, it. Matt Winkler actually w- worked for me um, way back when at the Wall Street Journal, when the Wall Street Journal created the Wall Street Journal Europe, based in Brussels. I was one of the founding. Um, editors for that publication, and we hired a group of four reporters in London to kind of be guerrilla warfare with the FT on the Eurobond market. And one of those reporters was a young kid named Matt Winkler. And that's how I knew Matt. Um, And I used to take his phone calls at 11 o'clock at night saying, uh, stop the presses, I have this scoop, and we would. And he was quite an energetic guy then. Um, And, you know, fast forward... Like 10 years later, um, word came back to me that Matt had was leaving the safety and prestige of the Wall Street Journal to go to a startup called Bloomberg to start a news department. <laughs> right. And I kept touch, in touch with him over the years, uh, you know, keeping track of how he was doing. And back then, you know, Bloomberg was considered this, you know, crazy upstart news service that probably didn't represent a threat to anyone, least of all the Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones. Hmm. And that was a fatal mistake on their part, because um, basically Matt and Bloomberg undervalued uh, or uh, undermined Tellerate's business. And, uh, Tellerate the was rest- the Wall Street Journal, was Dow Jones' effort to kind of build a, 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 a mousetrap like the Bloomberg terminal. Correct. And it, they just didn't understand that business. And Mike Bloomberg and Matt Winkler did. And so when I finally left the Wall Street Journal in 1999, uh, I reached out to Matt. And it was more, it was less that they convinced me than they actually offered me an opportunity, and I grabbed it. And it was unthinkable back then. I mean, I started at Mother Dow. My first job in journalism was for Smart Money magazine, and it was a it was a parallel effort to the Wall Street Journal. It was a joint venture with Hearst. Um, and those were the days where it was still omnipotent. You would never have imagined that this company would uh, capitulate and kind of fold over and ultimately sell to Rupert Murdoch. But this is the relationship I never understood. It's not necessarily journalism that was moving the needle uh, for profitability, the wild profitability at Bloomberg. It was uh, just the, the the product lust of this machine. I just remember having anything at your fingertips. Initially, before email, having uh, direct messaging, this private club where you could just message anyone on the Bloomberg. And it was this international language. And the table stakes to that, I mean, it was cost less than $20,000 back when I back when I had a, a, a you know a, a seat at the table at, at Goldman uh, but it was never really I don't I, I never really met many people saying that we need to spend the uh, thousands of dollars for the journalism I uh, 
I agree. It was a package that was extremely powerful, and it created a community of people who are fixated on stock and equity and bond prices. And I think the key to the Bloomberg success was the historical data and analysis. I mean, let's not make any mistake about it. It's the ability to take a look at asset prices and determine uh, relative value. And that's where people can make their money. And let's talk about that granularity. What is the funkiest asset you could find on the Bloomberg terminal? When I was there, I think it was Italian rabbit meat futures. I kid you not. There is a there is a quote for spot prices for Italian rabbit meat. I think we have uh, data for almost every part of chicken you can think of. Uh, (laughs) Wings, legs, all kinds of chicken prices. Well, I saw you tweet a great story uh, several weeks ago uh, that you guys ran in Bloomberg. I mean, this is the kind of stuff you could see in Bloomberg that you can't find at other places. On on taxi medallions, the return on taxi medallions, New York City taxi medallions, which have been this uh, great play because you compared it to gold since, uh, I think, the early 80s into 2013. Thousand percent return versus, say, a hundred and so percent. You get cash flow out of a taxi medallion. You don't get it out of um, you don't get it out of gold. It's kind of a it's a it's a it's an intangible value that you're just banking. Other people are going to buy. Um, how do you guys pull up data like that on, on, for example, New York City taxi medallion data? Who where where's the central database for that? Well, I think it comes from New York City, and it is on the Bloomberg terminal, and we do track it like thousands of other assets. And it's, it really does take journalists who have a very creative mind to come up with the comparisons that we come up with. Um, and it obviously, this is in the context of Uber and its disruptive right. influence on the business. So it was a great story. And I think a while back, you ran a story before Uber was on, on the lips of, you know, tips of anybody's tongue, uh, that, that this was the best performing asset. It beat U.S. stocks. It beat bonds. I mean, who would have thunk a New York City taxi medallion? I know. And it I, I wouldn't exactly call it an extremely liquid asset, but it is a price and we track it. And there you go. How do you separate something that's esoteric versus something that's actionable? Um, you know, there might be people out there that, uh, you know, institutional investors or money managers that are like, you know what, that's a non-correlating asset. Maybe if I can securitize it somehow or if I can become a broker. Is that the kind of genesis when, when these legions of reporters come to you and you get these ideas through memos? How much of, how much of your thinking is kind of actionability? We care very much. We don't want to throw out false signals that are not useful to anybody. But basically, we're in the idea business. If we can come up with a unique idea to a highly motivated audience of our customers, and they can run with that idea in all kinds of ways. So we're in the idea generation business more than anything else. And oftentimes, that's also surprising. So those are the stories that do best on the terminal. Marty Shanker, senior executive editor of Bloomberg News, chief curator of headlines. Uh, when you pounce, when you when you type T O P, top bang. Um, it's more than just headlines. There are stories behind those headlines. Well, tell me in your 15 years there, what is what is the 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 coolest or most popular headline you typed in? I mean, would it would it boil down to the financial crisis? Crisis was it something funky? I mean, I remember Marty. You have this knack for writing headlines that just grab you in. There was something about. There was something about strippers. Uh, and then strippers are people who own treasury securities that pull off the coupon. Right. And by the time you click it, you feel, oh, it's a little bait and switch. But you know what? I'm going to learn something. 
Yeah, well, we try to be provocative in our headlines as a way to attract attention to our stories, but not so out there as to be irresponsible. I couldn't tell, I couldn't conjure up a headline that I've, well, we did a story on J.P. Morgan's claims for how many, how much returns they get on their um, on their investment products. And um, the headline I wrote for that was, you know, we tried to replicate J.P. Morgan's returns and couldn't. That's all it said. That did very well. Um, but my most favorite headline I actually wrote for the Wall Street Journal many, many years ago when Jerry Rubin was working, uh, took a job on Wall Street, and my headline was simply, Free the Fortune 500. <laughs> I was very proud of that one. You're very proud of it. Uh, take me to the here and now. We're in 2015. We've had a bull market now for the better part of uh, you know, six years. Uh, you guys have covered that quite well. The stocks team there is so diligent. I mean, you can slice and dice the data on this in a way you know, the superlatives, the best since, the worst since. There's always right. fresh stuff being thrown out there, and it's pretty indispensable. Um, what do you what do you make of kind of the hand-wringing here in the United States about a bull market that's long in the tooth and about a complacency that seems to be resurgent after we were all chastened in 2008 and 2009 and suddenly the indicators across the board, whether you talk about, uh, you know, credit spreads or the situation in China, the opportunity for a Minsky moment. Uh, where, do, where do you see us in terms of uh, market sensitivity in the here and now? Well, I, th I think a lot of people underestimate the staying power of the U.S. economy. I, I, I realize that we've been in an expansion that's, you know, going on uh, six years. But we've done, we've done stories that point out that the moderate pace of that expansion may actually extend its longevity. Um, and so when you look at, you know, history, um, you could make a case that we're by no means done yet. And since the economy is a driver of asset prices, um, I, there's some people who believe we've got a lot more f uh, to go. I mean, you were you were covering things in the Wall Street Journal when we talked about you know Volcker slamming the brakes and right. you know you used to get a nice toaster for going to the bank and a 16% certificate of deposit. Uh, there has to be a big willing suspension of disbelief that there is staying power to this economy after the Fed's pumped something north of four trillion dollars of monetary easing. I'm sorry, of qualitative easing on top of zero percent interest rates. This is the multi-trillion dollar question for everybody. What is the non-hydrogenated organic power of this economy when you back out uh, unusual, unprecedented central bank stimulus? There's no question that this era of essentially zero interest rates for as long as it has will have unanticipated consequences. And, and, and no matter what anybody says, no one knows what those are. They may be muted. They may be extended over a long period of time, depending on how quickly and how steeply the Fed decides to raise rates. There can be external factors that none of us even can think of. The Rums Rumsfeldian known knowns and unknown knowns, knowns, unknowns. Correct. And those things could be much more fundamentally important than what the Fed does. Um, and if you look at past uh, black swan moments, they're always the things you never even thought of. That have a more fundamental impact on on markets everywhere.
Right. I can recall when we were looking around in 2007 and there were all these arguments that things were getting complacent. Steve Schwartzman of uh, Blackstone had his enormous birthday party with the uh, ginormous stone crab claws. And oh, yeah. it was like a Gatsby moment. And people said that this has to be a top of the bubble. Uh, and then we're looking all around the world for a Minsky moment, thinking it was going to be a banana republic or emerging market or surely China was going to do it. Meantime, it was happening under our noses here at Bear Stearns and kind of the right. the, the um, playing with fire on Wall Street. I think there there's a similar introspection uh, right now. You guys have covered it quite a bit. I think Stan Drunkenmiller has said this reminds him of 2003, 2004. Talk to me about... Uh, this headline that you have that's getting a lot of traction today, the analyst who predicted the bottom for the Shanghai Stock Exchange sees further 14% plunge and is invoking uh, the U.S. stock market crash of 1929. Well, I mean, it's it's a very provocative headline and from, a, from an analyst who has some standing. Um, and what we do try to do at Bloomberg News is is talk to the smartest people and get their views on where things stand. We're no by no means endorsing that position, but we're just reporting it. And we'll have stories from various strategists and analysts who have been right, and those people are listened to more than others. But then there's people who have been bearish on this market for six years, and you know. Um, yeah, the Jim Chanoses of the and world, the, the, the Mary British. Ravini and right. Chanos has been, well, Chanos actually has been t- screaming about shorting China. He's looking pretty good these days. Sure. I do want to get an idea. You know, I, um, I I faintly recall the Asian economic crisis. It was before I, I was in the securities industry. But the trauma across uh, that region in 1997, and as you saw things decouple, uh, actually, you know, the, 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 the entire region fall apart. Malaysia, Indonesia, Korea, Singapore had issues. I was never under the impression that China really bore the brunt of it, that China really came of age in 2001 uh, and then with its entry into the WTO. Uh, what, do we, what do we make of an enormous China, very quickly uh, the second largest economy on the planet, has taken more people out of poverty and into the middle class in, in a shorter span of time than in history? Uh, is it still possible that we can decouple from a hard landing in China? I, I think that it's possible, but I think the leadership there is really struggling with how to navigate a more market-based economy from a controlled economy as a way of integrating itself into the world economy. Um, it's really about how they manage that process that's going to determine whether we'll have a hard or a soft landing. Uh, but there's no doubt there will be a landing at some point. I mean, you cannot grow at 7 to 8% an economy that size forever. I mean, could you imagine Ben Bernanke in 2008 or by March 2009 actually going out there and pounding the table on U.S. stocks? <laughs> they yeah. did so with a little more discretion here in the U.S. At least you pump it into quantitative easing and you cover your tracks and you hope that it trickles down to the stock market and other risk assets. Yeah, you're right. And just going back to the Asian crisis of 1997, you know, we have something not nearly um, as dramatic, but under the radar is Latin America. You know, almost every economy you look at in Latin America is suffering. Uh, And they're hugely dependent on China. I mean, Peru sells copper to China. Uh, Argentina sells soybeans to China, uh, meat to China. Uh, Colombia, it's petrol, it's, you know, uh, Colombian uh, uh, fossil fuel exports go to China by and large. That's the that's the buyer of size. 
Right. So, you know, the world has become so interdependent, it's such a cliche, but it's true that, you know, if China gets a cold, you know, the, there are lots of economies that will get pneumonia. And, uh, you know, Latin America is certainly one of them. And you certainly write a lot about the situation now in Venezuela, mm -hmm. which uh, hyperinflation, uh, lack of toilet paper, bizarre arbitrage is happening, and people, you know, they smuggle things across the border from Colombia. Um, the, the, the currency peg is just screwed. Uh, the default is the big concern. And it's only exacerbated as crude oil prices tank. Um, you see a lot of consternation with Iran potentially coming back on the market fully and oil already well under $50 a barrel. Uh, didn't it used to be good, Marty, for us when we saw commodity prices collapse? Are not all commodity collapses the same? I don't think all commodity collapses are the same. And it, uh, 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 the, the biggest factor is the velocity of change, not so much the the amount. So, you know, commodity prices falling over a long period of time allows companies to adjust and and manufacturers to adjust. But when you have a precipitous decline like we've seen, it creates real disruptions in the marketplace. So it's the pace, not the amount. But we did see, you know, again, the example of the late 90s is only so instructive. But then when Asia fell apart and then Russia, you know, Latin America, uh, we did see commodity prices tumble. Oil fell to something like $10 a barrel That's by right. 1998. We were paying 99 cents at the pump. Uh, food was ridiculously cheap. Uh, why? I mean, th is there something unique? I mean, kind of the American exceptionalism. One, our debt is indispensable to other people. When the rest of the world is, is freaked out, no matter how profligate we are here in the United States, people pile into U.S. Treasuries, then pushing down our borrowing costs. That's one. That makes us really unique. We're like the redoubt of safety. And two, we disproportionately, as the as the buyer of size of commodities, as the as the hog for the longest time, the economy here takes a, a, a huge uh, shot in the arm when gas prices tumble, when you pay less theoretically for plane tickets for food at the grocery store. Well, it's interesting because we did have that kind of precipitous decline in gasoline prices over the last year or so, and everybody was looking for how, where that was going to show up in the economic data. And so far, that response has been pretty muted when you look at the data. Um, so I think a lot of people are still repairing their balance sheets, their personal balance sheets. And uh, I, I think that the 2008 meltdown has really fundamentally changed behavior uh, in the United States. So that bounce that you would get from a a big increase in the amount of consumer spending power is just not showing up in the data. You have seen now for six years um, a really unbelievable velocity in stock buybacks, uh, returning money to shareholders, cash on balance sheets. That that um, kind of alchemy of ledger domain has been really popular, but it is never, you know, when, when we ask the Passover question, what makes this recovery different from all other recoveries, it has never really recourse to companies en masse deciding, I need to hire people. I need to invest in human capital because I'm missing out on incremental revenue if I don't staff up. What's so different? Is it that we had so much slack coming out of the shock of 08? I think that that's a large part of it, that there's a lot of in, uh, underemployed and uh, unemployed people who are still trying to figure out their place in the workforce. And plus, the whole structure of job creation in the United States has changed in terms of where those jobs are and what skills are necessary to fill them. Um, so I think it's a combination of those, those factors that have really 
created the situation where companies would rather invest in their own share prices rather than in the workforce. And, and, uh, and plus, I mean, you cannot underestimate the concern people have about the cost of hiring an incremental worker in terms of medical care, in terms of um, profit sharing, in terms of all the other things that you need to do in order to employ somebody full time. I mean, you knowing your institutional memory includes the 70s and, and early 80s. I'm sorry to you know date you, but it's just, I'm it's, only 34. So. <laughs> you're a veteran. You're a veteran. You've been around the block. You know, spring right. chicken. Uh, when you see headlines like I remember on the terminal, I saw the University of Pennsylvania issued 100 year debt. Uh, there are tons of companies like McDonald's and Caterpillar. They were doing 40 year, 50 year debt. I mean, who is on the other side? As a person who's been really at the spigot of all of that data, going back to your Dow Jones days and having seen the SNL crisis, having seen Orange County, all these waves of default, various different interest rate cycles, is there part of you that, you know, I know the Bloomberg way and you're not supposed to editorialize like this. And like, what are people thinking? Uh, there's such distortions in this market. Are you kidding me? 50-year debt? 100-year debt? What do we know that's going to happen in the next 10 years, let alone 50 years? I agree with you, a 50-year bet on anything is a pretty dicey thing. Um, I, I do think that one of the factors involved in those kinds of decisions is not just a semblance, semblance of a return, but safety of the investment. I think it is, especially for U.S.-based companies, they're essentially betting on the safety and stability and longevity of the United States experiment. And that everything else that's going on in the world you can fairly be bullish that the United States will still be a viable enterprise 50 years down the road. I mean, we, we had a close call in 2008, Marty. As you guys know, you had some prize-winning work. Um, we were not acquired yet, uh, Business Week was, by Bloomberg until, I think, late 2009. But right. that must have been surreal for you to be uh, in that epicenter. Imagine, listeners, uh, this kind of this this war room of sorts. It's, it's, it's rather quiet, the fourth floor newsroom at uh, Bloomberg, but it's this sea of terminals and reporters just banging away at finding these stories and filing filing them. Um, you kind of feel the energy when you walk into the room, and there you're sitting quietly at one of, uh, one of the chairs. Uh, I cannot imagine what was going on when everything was in free fall, when we had a well, company like AIG collapse, when you had uh, yep. this domino effect of Lehman, Merrill. What, what, what the heck was going on? It was a harrowing experience, but if you're a journalist, which is essentially what I am, it was one of the best experiences a journalist could ever have, is being at the epicenter of a, a, a climatis, uh, climactic event. I mean, I, I remember being in the newsroom meeting in midday at the Wall Street Journal in 1987 when the Dow average was down something like 400 points. And we made that decision that we would call that a crash. And I was there at Bloomberg when the 2007-2008 meltdown happened and making those kinds of same judgments. And, and it's almost a privilege to be in the center. Well, I have, to, I have to wonder. I mean, the world was really uh, dependent on what the Wall Street Journal was going to say and waited for the print copy. There was the Financial News Network. There were fax machines and whatnot in 1987. Now you talk about volumes absolutely dwarfing what you had in, in 1987. And then the systemic import of everything that was happening absolutely dwarfing the crash and the SNL crisis. I mean, 
I remember at Business Week, I was being pulled aside by editorial assistants, by people in the graphics department. When we were at McGraw-Hill, they're like, you know, um, we're going to be eating cat food. We're going to be in a bread line. And I, I actually, reading all these histories of investing, I think that's the time when you're supposed to go and buy index funds. Well, you know, the, being at Bloomberg and so connected to the financial markets, you gain appreciation that that as long as the blood is flowing, the body will survive. And we provide the, the impetus for that circulation to keep going. And I'll, I remember vividly being on calls on Sunday night um, as the Asian markets were opening and Bear Stearns was hanging in the balance and AIG was out there. And it was a high wire act. We didn't know whether the markets would be even able to open on Monday morning. Um, but the enormity of the financial infrastructure and the ability of information to flow freely, um, not just ours, but everywhere, uh, I think actually helped provide the, uh, the ability for things to eventually stabilize. That and TARP. Right, TARP and everything else that followed with the Federal right. Reserve. I mean, in, in pure, crystal clear 2020 hindsight, without the fog of crisis, the fog of war, it was a generational buying opportunity. And you had players, uh, even like the likes of Jeremy Grantham, who's always been a skeptic, the big hedge fund manager in Boston, uh, the Luthold Group in, in Minneapolis, saying that this just doesn't happen. The risk is just so asymmetric, right? Either right. we do go down the deep end and we have a depression or you're going to see an enormous buying opportunity. I mean, junk bond spreads. I think junk bonds were yielding 20% plus they were. back then. You you know, it was a, it was a really a once in a lifetime opportunity, feast or famine, right? But Robin, don't forget that also many, many people did something smart by doing nothing. Right. They didn't go into their 401ks in panic. They just stayed the course. And while those weren't buyers, they essentially did the right thing. You know, it's Jack Bogle. He's always said, don't just do something, sit there. Right. And it's parlously difficult to do when you have older people, especially in my case, coming to us and saying, look, my, my father was a product of the Great Depression. This is the big one. You know, it's like in Sanford and Sons. I feel it. It's the big one. Oh. Yep. Um, was there a moment, Marty, where you just stepped out, went into the courtyard, uh, let's not say how to smoke or anything like that, but said, listen, perspective. What, what do I want to say about this? What do I, how do I think it's going to be looked at in history? How do I separate noise and, and chicken little fear-mongering from what is going to be important and what's going to be built to last on the terminal? You just let the data guide you. And plus, you know, I have been in this business for 30 years. I've seen many crises and I've and we always seem to, you know, while it, it and, and what you're really trying to do is call the bottom, essentially. And when it's darkest is when you can really see a turning of the corner and trying to identify when that is. And there were times when you just didn't know, obviously, what was going to happen, but the systems kept working. It just became reflexive. We've seen we, we would see the market by the spring of 2009 falling hundreds of points a day. Um, no apparent impetus. There was this rumor going around that they were going to wind down Citibank, the the D student of all of the too big to fail banks. I remember. And you just didn't know what to believe. What was echo chamber? Well, remember what was especially terrifying. We didn't know was uh, how a, a AAA player like AIG 
could fall to nothing. And there was rumors that the government would backstop AIG. We had already seen the government backstop Bear Stearns in a weird way, but in a in a shocking example, I mean, Bear Stearns was a $25 stock or so, and the next minute it's being bought by J.P. Morgan for $2. That that should have been a kind of a signal about of, of, of how toxic things were at the subterranean level. Oh, yeah. And I remember Bear Stearns, CEO, getting on TV and being assuring that everything was fine just two days before they were disappeared. Um, and I'm sure that even he didn't know uh, where the markets were taking that asset. Uh, so it, it, it was a quite frightening time. Talk no to us. Well, it. talk to us, Marty, about too big to fail and, and doubling down on too big to fail effectively. Everybody invade against it with... Um, uh, you know, financial regulation and the Fed coming in and Treasury Secretary. And yet these banks, if you look at them now, if you look at a J.P. Morgan Chase, if you fully accordion out that name, you have Bear Stearns, you have Washington Mutual, you have Providian, you have the old chemical bank, you know, all, all the things that were tucked into these things. How in the world, if something, we, you, you saw it, you guys covered the London Whale scenario, the, the big trading error yes. at J.P. Morgan. You covered that beautifully three or four years ago. What if that metastasized into something worse? How in the world do you manage, do you wind down, do you cordon off a behemoth the size of a J.P. Morgan Chase? Well, that's why the Fed has been pressing for these living wills that all the banks have supposed to, uh, and, and they kicked them back a couple of times because they didn't feel they were practical. And we, we at Bloomberg have done a story recently about one of the things uh, J.P. Morgan was supposed to do, and the other banks as well, is, is reduce the complexity of their corporate structure. And we did a story a couple of weeks ago that said uh, that showed, I think, more than 500 separate corporate entities within J.P. Morgan, um, which is hardly simplifying its structure. So I'm not sure. You know, the question is, is just uh, what what can you do to ensure that there's an orderly an orderly oh i love the atmospherics of the newsroom no no go ahead an orderly uh winding down of a bank that big it's just impossible to know well i find that it's all theoretical at this point you could say things like living will and you could mention your tier one and tier two and tier three assets but in real time kind of in, in situ in vivo, whatever the heck we want to call it i have no idea how you get your arms around the size a bank the size of of uh Bear Stearns. And didn't we see something about Wells Fargo now being the biggest bank? What was that, last week? Uh, yes, it, it was. And that is, in fact, the case. And um, that is on the basis of their real estate activity, and which is, you know, the housing market has, has is continuing to recover, and they've taken full advantage of it. This is Marty Shanker, Senior Executive Editor of Bloomberg News. It's a treat. He doesn't do much radio. He's a busy, busy guy. He's up at 3.30 in the morning, and he's his head is deep in international headlines, and he has this Herculean task of preparing the most important headlines for Bloomberg's customer base, its subscribers, its data terminal users. Uh, Marty, I want to open it up to you, kind of what is on your headline? What do you think is being short-shrifted out there? What are some of the... The, the, the cool things that you guys are covering going into this this precarious season where a lot of people leave to the beach and then come back, you know, in September and are suddenly blindsided by volatility. Well, you know, I, I do think that um, one of the really interesting phenomenons is not so much financial but political, and mm -hmm. that's Donald Trump. 
And while the Huffington Post has decided they're not going to cover him as a serious candidate, it's uh, our judgment that he has to be. And he is, uh, we just produced a story this morning on what our calculation, again, data-driven, of his wealth and put it at 2.8 billion versus the 10 billion he's claiming. But I do think um, his impact on the race is going to be significant and long-lasting. And it's interesting to me how fascinated our customers are with Donald Trump, not just because he's a showman and not just because he's a rich guy, but how his candidacy may impact who is going to be president in 2016. And make no mistake, that is going to be a seminal election for this country on a whole range of issues. For our customers, the whole issue of income inequality and sure. redistribution of income and, and, and indeed, capitalism is a major theme that's going to play out in 2016. Well, talk to me about Trump, because to my mind, he represents 1980s New York. I mean, I've never looked at his name or his name brand as a kind of leading indicator of wealth. We know what the, you know, the, the, the deep money, the deep pockets of New York are. A lot of the hedge fund managers in the Connecticut corridor, um, uh, some of the Chinese and, and Russian money that's buying up real estate on the Upper East Side and Upper West Side. Why does a person like Trump have staying power? If we back out The Apprentice and all the other self-promotional stuff he, he did, what, what, what does he represent? I think he represents the non-politician candidate. And I think the U.S. electorate is is pining for someone who is, quote-unquote, not a politician, who just says what he believes, is viewed as somewhat of a problem solver. And and he connects with that that sentiment in the electorate who are just fed up with politics as usual. But does anybody out there fed up with politics as usual believe that there's anything to be gained in trolling John McCain for getting caught? It seems to not matter to a certain significant number of potential voters in the election. Now, of course, um, we can see how this is going to play out over time. Um, but he is going to be the star of the debate next week, and we'll have to see who emerges out of the shadows of Trump um, in that debate. And that to me is kind of the more interesting thing to come out of the debates next week is just who comes in second. Mm. You're also covering the tumble in gold prices this year. This was a vindicated asset class after 2002 and 2003. It's vexingly difficult for individual investors to play gold. There are lots of distortions in exchange-traded funds. They reset in funky ways. There are all sorts of security and warehousing costs. If you go out and buy bullion, um, you know, do something like in an Ocean's Eleven sense. Uh, it, it's just not practical. And there's always been this meaning of life question. And I especially get it from Iranian relatives who bring the kind of the gold fetish from the old country. How do you how do you put gold in a portfolio? It's it's punishing one of the smartest investors out there in David Einhorn. Yeah, we, we have a story uh, today on David Einhorn's uh, um, approach dropping 16% uh, so far in 2015 because he bet on gold. And and John Paulson did the same thing, although we don't have his returns yet. Well, what does gold represent in this day and age? I mean, there are cultures that, that you know, it's just gospel. Like in India, you hoard gold. The Chinese, we thought they have much bigger hoard than 
than than we know now. But as a as a practical commodity, I mean, it's not like you're tipping drills with it. Um, some people have it in in their in their fillings. I mean, w- right. what does it do at the end of the day? There's no cash flow. There's no dividend. There's significant carriage costs. Well, but there are many, many investment professionals who think that any investor who is serious has to have a certain percentage, not a large percentage, of their assets in gold because it represents a store of value. Um, And that, yes, it does go up and down, but it is a fixed commodity and thus has inherent value. Um, But I... I agree with you. It is a very strange and unique asset and has to be handled with great care. And there are some some uh, professionals who say you shouldn't go near it. Ever. Right. But there's this there's this search and it's been endemic in the period, you know, wh- where central banks are at maximum easing. Uh, all these distortions are going on. You have negative interest rates in a lot of places for a while, like like Switzerland. So there is this yearning, this hankering for a true in inflationary redoubt, a true store of value. Um, we just don't know if that exists. I mean, people were making the argument about oil as being that store of value in 2008, and you saw that it plunged, you know, whatever it is, demand destruction from $145 to closer to $45 now. There are people that told me that the real money kid, you know, it's like my graduate plastics moment. The real money is in Austrian timber trusts, as if that's a liquid asset. Um, what, what to your mind, in all these different asset classes that you cover out there, um, is the true redoubt of safety, is the true store of value at a time when uh, currencies and uh, uh, national credits represent something else that are inflated by central banks. Well, now you're trying to get me to be an investment advisor. I'm not going to go No, there. I'm getting you to be a philosopher, a meaning-of-life person, right? Well, you know, I do believe that a diversified portfolio among all different asset classes is the traditional, very unsexy uh, approach, but it probably stands the test of time. Um, and essentially, I think that that the political element of where your investments are are probably the most pivotal thing. So in that sense, I think the United States is the most stable country in the world. And, and ultimately, that is where you will find the safest and more, most reliable returns. Marty, talk to me about Bernie Sanders. Uh, people just look at him as kind of a sideshow. Uh, like a Vermont Subaru driving, uh, you know, primary voice uh, that is not going to last past, you know, the middle of 2016. But you guys are saying that he could be bigger. Well, Mark Halpern, who is uh, one of our managing editors for politics and joined us uh, uh, about a year ago, wrote a very uh, interesting story just yesterday on how Bernie Sanders' problem is bigger than anybody realizes. And, you know, he's not arguing that Bernie Sanders is going to win the nomination or become the uh, president of the United States, but he does go into history and show how fringe candidates like him um, can have an enormous and an outsized, shall we say, impact on the front. Yeah, you think Rick Santorum and Gingrich in 2012, you think Pat Buchanan in 92 uh, against uh, W41, and Jesse Jackson gave Dukakis a lot of grief in 88. He did, and don't forget those candidates lost. So um, we're not making any predictions. It's far too early. But I think people, uh, if you read that piece, uh, will realize that you cannot underestimate the impact of Bernie Sanders on this race. 
Uh, Marty, I want to throw a wild card in. We talked about emerging markets earlier. Uh, there's a lot of talk right now about, uh, like this nuclear deal or not, Iran is a viable frontier market with any modicum of normalcy or normalization in commercial and diplomatic ties with the West. Uh, there's a lot of money that's going to sluice in. Already, McDonald's has a link up seeking yep. uh, franchisees for Iran. Um, you have uh, anecdotal evidence of uh, a huge uh, brown and black market for iPads uh, in Iran for Johnny Walker Black, obviously for Cosmo magazines. They love uh, satellite content from the United States in Iran. The population, if you could get a true poll, is actually pretty pro-U.S. compared to the rest of the Middle East. Uh, and you had Goldman Sachs come out. I believe in the middle part of the last decade, and declare something called the N11, the next 11. Um, the, the BRIC appellation was really popular, Brazil, Russia, India, right. China. But if you're looking to invest in the next, uh, you know, the, the bleeding edge emerging markets that are going to be the next big ones, Iran is actually one of them. Uh, what kind of stuff are you seeing and hearing in terms of institutional interest in Iran? Well, I think there's a tremendous uh, interest, I mean, not just in their oil, but in uh, their consumer uh, propensity to, to consume uh, goods made around the world. Uh, so they're, from an investment point of view, or, you know, there's no question that uh, Iran is going to become much more involved in world commerce as a result of this deal um, than it was before. And the question is, what kind of impact does that increased activity in the world economy mean for their internal politics? Um, and, you know, I think that Obama is betting that that kind of contact is going to lead to a moderation and eventually more democracy uh, in that country. And as they say, it remains to be seen if that's true. That was also the bet with China. Though, in terms of, yeah. of, you know, we used to have the debate every year, should we extend favored nation trading status to them? That it is going to normalize, but also anecdotic. You know, the data does say that prisoner executions have not abated. Human rights crackdowns are, 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 are still significant in the second biggest economy on the planet. I mean, where has there been evidence that uh, economic normalcy and stabilization has rolled over? Maybe Myanmar you guys covered? Maybe, but, you know, don't forget the Soviet Union, all right? and what happened there. Um, and as a result of the more uh, economic ties, eventually, and more contact with the West, uh, you know, the Berlin Wall came down and the rest is history. So there are some examples of that. Uh, I do think that, you know, what you're looking at is, you know, does isolationism and sanction produce the result in that you want, or does more connection with the West get you what you want. How many Bloomberg terminals do you think they're going to order in Tehran? I don't know, but um, <laughs> I'm sure there's more than one. You uh, better you know, add and, pistachio and, and caviar Cuba futures. Too. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Um, Marty, in the few minutes we have left, I want to discuss actually. Um, let's 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 discuss the nexus of these precarious economies such as Venezuela and Russia right now with commodity prices with the price of oil suppose we see something that we think is beneficial the united states sits on this gusher. North Dakota, as you guys reported, is now bigger than the smallest member of OPEC, which is Ecuador. Uh, Iran comes online again. Let's suppose it can get 
it can get the necessary uh, uh, retooling for its rusted oil infrastructure and adds to that ocean of oil. And we see a further plunge in oil prices. Uh, the Saudis clearly are not content to give up market share to North Dakota or Iran. How, in, in your mind's eye, does this play out? Um, is this kind of a race to the bottom? There used to be a discipline where OPEC would get together and say, nope, nope, nope. We're going to pull. We're going to tighten the spigots. Uh, there's going to be unanimity because we all lose if prices keep plunging. But and yet we're seeing prices plunge. Well, let's not forget what the historical price of oil is over not just the last 10 years, but the last 50 years. I mean, I do think that the market is seeking its normal position, and that eventually it'll stabilize, and it'll happen over a period of time. Um, not just a short period of time, but a long period of time, and that economies will eventually adjust. Um, I, there will obviously be some pain along the way. I mean, a reconfiguration of the industries. Uh, I don't think you can just put shale away and say that that's a failed concept. I think that you will eventually see a, no, a more normal price of oil over a longer period of time, and markets do seem to... But to abuse to abuse that cliche, what is the new normal in oil? Because we nobody in two thousand eight suspected that we sit on oceans of it, that we we could fracture things and right. pull it out of of corners of of the interior of the planet in ways that we have. And no one anticipated this uh, break between Saudi Arabia um, and and not just the Midwest, the United States, but Iran. There there used to be this idea that the cry uncle point for domestic fossil fuels was like $60, $70 a barrel. But yet, there's still these drills are still working, the rigs are still up, and we're at $45. Yeah, and that may continue to be the case. And don't forget about alternative energy sources, such as solar and geothermal and all the other kinds of alternative energy that is becoming um, much more prevalent, and the auto industry becoming much more efficient. efficient. I mean, these are all external factors that play into the oil price. It just goes to show us that a lot of us had no idea as recently as 2008, spring of 2008, when there were all these people out there saying that oil will never fall below the triple digits ever again, that you're going to have a, another spate of airline bankruptcies, that there's no way that there's going to be profitability in that industry. We're going to have to rebuild cities. The exurbs are dead. And then voila. I mean, the U.S. economy seems to be chugging along. Uh, the, the planet is not in a kind of a global recession or anything right now, but oil prices are in the tank. Well, you know, there's one thing I've learned in this business is conventional wisdom is almost always wrong. And just when everybody is saying one thing is the time to take the other side of that deal. So uh, having said all that, Marty, uh, in closing, um, I know you get very little sleep every night. I know you're on a very disciplined regimen of get, you know, get home, get the headlines in, email all the time, uh, dinner, sleep, wake up, exercise. What, if anything, does keep you up at night right now? And well, what are we? What are we short shrifting? What should we paying? What should we be paying much more heed to? With all the indicators you're saying, this, of course, being data driven, what you see on the terminal. I do think you brought it up earlier. The consequence of zero interest rates for this long a period of time, and what kind of impact that environment has longer term once the Fed starts raising rates, I think no one really knows. And so, I mean, you just have to be prepared for every eventuality. But to me, that is the big question, is what happens when interest rates start rising? 
Oh, boy. Uh, I guess I'm going to buy some taxi medallions and uh, Italian rabbit meat futures when that happens. You could always drive those taxis if you need to. <laughs> Maybe a greenhouse somewhere, Marty. Do you yeah. have a greenhouse? Uh, I have a big garden. Up in the hills somewhere, though? Uh, up in northern New Jersey. <laughs> Full disclosure, this is Robin Farzad. We were talking to Marty Shanker, Senior Executive Editor of Bloomberg News, Chief Curator, if you will, of headlines uh, for The Terminal. He's been at Bloomberg for 15 years. Prior to that, three decades at The Wall Street Journal. His aliases include Terminal Velocity, The Wizard of Bloomberg, and Marty McFly. Uh, Marty, with your permission, we would love to start a series if you're happy with how this sounds ultimately. Uh, Maybe call this Tuesdays with Marty. Are you cool with that? Uh, well, maybe every fourth Tuesday. Oh, okay. I'll take you up on that. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it, Mark. Okay, Robin. Great to talk to you. Full disclosure, we are on NPR One, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes. We are everywhere. WRIR on Wednesday mornings and Sunday mornings. You can listen to us on CompuServe, on Prodigy, Excite at Home, The Works. You know where to find us. Our engineer is John Valentine. I'm Robin Farzad. Back at you next week.